one of the things that's really struck me about intellectual life is how often we get the questions wrong. And we often get them backwards, not just wrong, but actually backwards. So as a clinical psychologist, I've often treated people with anxiety and uh, people wonder practically, individually, clinically, why are people anxious? And I think, that's a completely ridiculous question. It, the reasons for anxiety are starkly self-evident. What I wonder is why aren't people terrified out of their skulls so badly every second of their life that they can't even move? <laughs> yeah, and you all laugh because you understand that. It's like anxiety, that's no mystery. It's like brief spells of calm, that's a mystery. <laughs> okay, and the client will come to me and say, well, I'm procrastinating. Why do I procrastinate? It's like, no, that's a stupid question. It's easy just to sit there and do nothing. What's the mystery is why you ever get up and do anything difficult at all. Procrastination is the default. And psychologists ask, doctors ask, well, why do people take cocaine? It's like, no, no, it's, a <laughs> <laughs> it's the wrong question. <laughs> the right question is, why not, like an addicted rat, don't you just take cocaine all the time until you die? That's the question. And this question about meaning is like that too. Is there meaning in life? That's a stupid question. And it's, I'm, I'm serious about that. That's not a question you ever ask yourself if you're in pain, right? Because when you're in pain, you know that life has a meaning. It's the pain. And you can't argue yourself out of that meaning. And so, when we're asking whether or not life has meaning, that isn't what we mean. What we mean is, in the face of life's pain and suffering, does life have any positive meaning? And that is not the same question. Now, I'm going to leave that aside for a minute, and I'm going to tell you a little story. It's a little experiment. I remember in 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell down, there was a great celebration in Berlin, and the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra played a part in it, and they came out to a section of the wall that had been knocked down, where there was a huge crowd, and played Beethoven's Ninth. And I remember watching that, the great third movement, the triumphant third movement. And it was so wonderful to see everyone there and hear this orchestra playing those unbelievably remarkable notes in triumph that this horror show had finally come to a halt. You can imagine someone critically minded and rational at an event like that standing behind you as you're listening to the great strains of that symphony manifest themselves, tap you on the shoulder and say, well, you know, that symphony is going to end. What makes you think it has any meaning at all? It's like, well, how do you respond to something like that? You say, you should reconsider the way you're looking at the world there, buddy. Because that's just not the right answer. It's just not the right question. It's like, 
The symphony has no meaning because it ends. Well, you're not paying attention to what's going on if that's the way you think. Or maybe you're thinking too much. Yes, you're thinking too much and not paying enough attention. But it's more serious than that. And, and this ties in the issue of pain. Say, what does it all matter if in 10 billion years the earth is going to fall into, or the sun is going to expand and consume the earth? What difference does it make? And I would say, well, is that that kind of answer you're going to give to a child that's in pain? That's your answer? It's like, hey, you've got the flu, you're anxious, you're having a nightmare, you're in terrible pain, but in 10 million years, who the hell's going to know the difference? <laughs> yeah, right, no kidding. Eh? It's like, you don't... If the question is, if that response is absurd in that situation, then it's an absurd response. The mere fact that you can come up with a time frame across which your current activity is meaningless only means that you're capable of playing with meanings across time frames. It doesn't mean anything at all about meaning, as far as I can tell. Is it absolutely obligatory that everything that's meaningful has to be significant in some unimaginable distant future? Why is that the hallmark? Why wouldn't you just say, well, here's an idea. Why don't you stop conceptualizing your life across time, time frames that takes all the positive meaning out of them? How would that be for a suggestion? Maybe the fact that posing the question in that way makes you feel miserable and wretched and futile is an indication that there's something wrong with posing the question in that manner. And you might say, well, there's nothing wrong with posing questions. And I would say, well, that brings us back to the child in pain problem. Sometimes there is a problem with posing questions in a certain way. And what difference is it going to make in 10 million years is not a sufficient response to someone who's suffering. And then you might say, well, we could, we could expand that idea even. We could take play with that idea of suffering. We could say, well, maybe it's a child in Auschwitz, you know? And the suffering isn't merely a consequence of an illness. Not that that's trivial. But the suffering is the consequence of conscious malevolence. How about that? And the purpose of the malevolence is just to make things worse. And, and to top it all off, because malevolence is a form of art, it's not only to make things worse, it's to make things worse in the worst possible imaginable way, which is basically to amplify the suffering of someone maximally innocent in the most pointless way possible. Well, what, what's your answer to that? It's like, in 10 million years, what difference is it going to make? Life is fundamentally meaningless? It's like, what kind of answer is that? It's an answer that shows that the framework within which that question is generated is invalid. That's what kind of answer it is. I, I realized a while back that I had gone through a process when I was in my 20s that was akin to something Descartes did. I'm not trying to compare myself to Descartes. Um, but he was, he was trying to look for something that he couldn't doubt. And the consequence of his search was 
I think, therefore I am, which I don't think is a, exactly a good translation of what Descartes meant. I think he meant something more like, I can't dispute the reality of my own consciousness, something like that. And that's good. Um, that isn't where I got to in my contemplations. I was looking for something that I regarded as incontrovertible. And I was fortunate at that time because I was reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago among many other things. And the Gulag Archipelago is a description of the absolute catastrophes of the Soviet state and the entanglement of the individual psyches of the Soviet citizens in that catastrophe, their descent into deceit and cruelty, deceit, resentment, and cruelty. And Solzhenitsyn said in the Gulag Archipelago that he thought the Nuremberg trials were the most important event of the 20th century. And the reason he said that was because the Nuremberg judgment, for better or worse, was that there were some acts that were so viciously brutal that there was no excuse whatsoever for engaging in them, no matter who you were, or what your culture was, or what your rationale was. And so for, for Solzhenitsyn, the Nuremberg trials established what you might describe as the transcendent reality of evil. And that's an unbelievably useful thing. It's akin to this idea of suffering in, in my estimation. And because, well, it's the child in, the, in Auschwitz problem that you need an answer to the problem posed by the suffering of innocence as a consequence of malevolence. You say that's, that's, that's evil, the, the conscious exaggeration of unnecessary suffering. And that gives you a vantage point. That's wrong. Whatever it is that is, that's wrong. Well then, you have a place to stand. You can say, oh, okay, now, I know that there's something that's wrong. In a non-trivial way, in a way that can't be just dispensed with, with rational objections that emerge as a consequence of contemplation of the boundedness of life. Those answers aren't serious enough to address the issue. Well, so I thought, okay, well, I found something that I can grip onto or stand on without dispute. There are acts that are unquestionably evil. And that means that there are acts that are unquestionably good. Now, it doesn't mean that we know what they are, right? Because just because you know one pole of something doesn't necessarily mean you know the other. I could say that whatever leads us as far away as we can possibly get from Auschwitz, that's good. Well, I've been trying to puzzle out what that might be for 25 years to outline it in a practical manner, I suppose, in, a, in an abstract manner. To understand if there's a root, a, a mode of being, let's say, that takes us away from undue suffering, but more than that, takes us away from undue suffering 
multiplied by malevolence. That's a fundamental existential problem of life. We all suffer. That's the meaning of life. We all suffer. The suffering is exacerbated by the malevolence in our hearts and the malevolence in the hearts of all of us. And the paramount issue that faces us is what to do about that. And the answer is, I think, live a life that manifests itself as meaningful. Because it seems to me that the meaning isn't a, a rational phenomenon. It's not something that you create. This is where Nietzsche, I think, got it wrong. He believed that as a consequence of the death of God, we, had to, we would have to create our own values. We would have to become gods ourselves, so to speak. But I don't think that Nietzsche was right, because I don't think that we can create our own values. I think that we have to discover them. And I think that what we discover are eternal values. And I think that the eternal values that are discoverable are precisely the values that lead us away from the pathway to perdition that was characterized by places such as Auschwitz. And I also think that we all know this. Now, it's not that we can't question it, because we can question it. But the questioning is, in some sense, beside the point, like the person objecting to the grandeur grandeur of Beethoven's Ninth by pointing out that it's going to end. The questioning is beside the point. It's missing the point. I've studied a variety of great psychologists, Jean Piaget and Carl Jung and Freud and Carl Rogers, many of the great 20th century clinicians. And And my sense is that, along with the biologists, and the evolutionary psychologists, that we're, we're starting to map out the pathway that might be the, the opposite of the catastrophic mode of being that leads us into pits of hell like Auschwitz. And that there's something genuinely real about it. Like, seriously real. Metaphorically real and literally real both at the same time, that the instinct to meaning that you experience, for example, when you listen to something great, that, that, that experience of meaning that overcomes you isn't some epiphenomena. It's not something, some mere reflection of some more fundamental process, but that which is more fundamental than anything else. You say, well, you can't deny that pain is real and suffering is real and you can't deny that m suffering induced by malevolence is the worst of all possible sufferings. Those are all undeniable as far as I'm concerned. Those are all meanings of life. And, and they're real enough so that if you encounter them, like if you encounter true malevolence, the probability that you'll walk away from it unscathed is very, very low. It will damage you psychophysiologically and you might never recover. And that's real enough for me. Well, is the path away from that real? Is the path that transcends that real? Maybe it's more real. That's what I've come to believe, as pessimistic as I am about the nature of humanity, myself included. As, as real as I believe suffering and evil to be, 
it appears to me that the mode of being that leads you away from that, that enables you to bear the suffering with nobility and to be useful to others who are in pain and to constrain the malevolence in your own heart and around you, that that mode of being is more powerful than that which it is set against. And not only that, I think that we experience this. I think we experience it. We just don't notice. Maybe because we're too busy thinking. Because noticing and thinking aren't the same thing. We see in our own lives when we're engaged in something deeply meaningful. Music is the best pathway to that, I think. It's the most, it's the most rapid and indisputable pathway to that. Everyone, virtually everyone loves music. And music speaks of meaning. It, it, it does it directly. It shows you what life would be like if it was ordered and harmonious, and you were dancing along with it properly. It gives you an intimation of psychological integrity. But you watched your lives, day to day, week to week, month to month, you'll notice that there are times when you're so deeply engaged in what you're doing, when what you're doing is so meaningful, in, 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 the kind of meaning that announces itself, not the kind that you're creating, that life is so meaningful, you think, this is worth the suffering. And you think, well, that's meaning, right? Meaning is what makes the suffering worthwhile. Is that real? It's not something you think up, it's something that you discover. And you can watch, you can see, day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour, week to week. You can see when you're conducting yourself or being conducted in a manner that allows that meaning to reveal itself in a way that in the moment, even if you don't notice, the conditions of your life justify themselves. And, and that's really saying something because pain and suffering and malevolence are real. And for something to justify that, it's really something for something to justify that. But will you find that? You find it in art, you find it in literature, you find it in the relationships you have with others if those relationships are founded on trust and truth. You find it in what you say and do if what you say and do comes from the heart. You can experience that. The price of experiencing it, I would say, is twofold. You have to take responsibility for being. You have to do that voluntarily, and that means that you have to take responsibility for the suffering of being and accept it and work to ameliorate it. And you have to do that voluntarily, and that's a b barrier. I think very frequently that arguments like, well, what difference is it going to make 10 million years in the future, aren't hyper-rational objections to the nature of being itself, but hyper-rationalistic excuses for failing to bear the responsibility of living properly moment to moment and hour to hour. There... <laughs> say you have a child who's sick, maybe one who's been hurt. You say, well, what do you say or do in the face of that? Well, you say, Hey, kid, I'm here with you. I'm here beside you. It matters what's happening to you. And we're going to do everything we possibly can 
to get through this together. And if you're lucky, you get a hug as a consequence of that. And you think, if you don't think that's meaningful, man, there's something wrong with your soul. And answer, what the hell difference is it going to make in 10 million years? That's the devil himself speaking. Oh, that's good enough. So, thank you.